It is uh, good to be with you this morning. I'm thankful that you are here today on this first Sunday of 2024. If you're in the room or if you're joining us online, I know we have some people joining us online this morning as well. I want to welcome all of you and tell you how thankful I am that you're here. I want to thank uh, John and Kim for reading our gospel reading and James for leading us in our time around the table. Uh, both of those set us up well for our conversation today. Some of you may be wondering as we get started today, uh, back at the beginning of the Advent series that I preached in, in December, I, I talked about the fact that I wanted to encourage you to, to embrace the entire season of Advent. And after Advent, I told you that uh, which I do every year, you know, that, that Christmas is really not a one-day thing, it's a 12-day thing. And some of you came into church this morning and you were, you're, you've been counting on your calendar and you know that it's past the 12th day of Christmas and the Christmas trees are still up. So that is because as a staff, we had a variety of other things going on this week and so we just decided to just leave the trees up and we'll get to them when we get to them. So we're getting to kind of extend the season a little bit more. It's just really pretty anyway, so you have some additional things to look, to look at this morning as we uh, study God's Word together. So we know that it's not the 12th, past the 12th day of Christmas, but um, we still let the trees up anyway. So uh, maybe that's some of you too in your house. It is the case in ours. We didn't get it down yesterday, so... I want to begin uh, this new year with a new sermon series that I am uh, very excited about. I've been thinking about for a little while now, and uh, the series is called Surprise the World. And this study is intended to be very, very practical in nature. Um, and, and I share that with you today on the front end of the series because I really want you, as we walk through the next several weeks together, to keep that in your mind. And I want you to be listening to the sermons with ears uh, that are tuned uh, to, for this to be something that you can live and that you can practically apply uh, in your own life. And so one, one resource that we're going to offer during this series is that two of the adult classes in January will provide an opportunity for you to go deeper with the content that we'll be discussing in the sermon. Bethany Thomas is going to be leading a discuss, sermon discussion class up in uh, 301, and I'm going to be working through some material from the book that I'm using as a resource by, by the same title in the community room at the bottom of the ramp. This is also a great time at the beginning of the year to attend a Bible class if that's not been a normal rhythm of, of your life. And so whether it's one of these two class options, I know Larry Joe is starting a new class in the fellowship hall. Our bridge group has a class upstairs. Uh, we want to encourage you to be a part of one of those classes, but that one I specifically mentioned a couple of those are really geared toward helping us kind of dig in a little deeper to some of the stuff we're going to talk about here in the next several weeks together. Uh, I want to ask if you would pray with me as we start today. Father, we, we thank you for a new year and a new opportunity that it brings as we think about uh, the life that we have uh, here on earth, the time that we're given with uh, the mist of a life that we all have. And uh, with each passing day and year that comes, we acknowledge, God, that they are all gifts and uh, we treasure them and want to express gratitude for them today. And as we look forward to this new year uh, and think about, begin to think about the ways that you might use our lives here in this world, uh, we pray that you'll give us ears to hear and eyes to see all that you want us to hear and see as we study your word together as we attempt <clears throat> to live lives that surprise the world around us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, Surprise the World is a sermon series. Uh, I want to kind of 
come out here on the front end and say that it's, it's a sermon series that is really about helping us live out our faith or share our faith. Uh, and sometimes the word that we use for this is evangelism. And I know that when I say the word evangelism, for some of us, just the word evangelism often brings up all sorts of different emotions and thoughts, feelings for people. Maybe you picture from some time in your past a door-knocking campaign that some church or minister led you on, or maybe you picture uh, a drawing that some, someone showed you at some point that really tried to simplify the gospel story that you could share quickly. Maybe if you wrote it on the back of a napkin and you left it for your waiter or waitress, uh, maybe, it, maybe it brings up some other thought or feeling for you, some track that somebody gave you a long time ago, or maybe you just, I don't know, I don't know what experience you might have with. There's probably a variety of experiences in the room when we say the word evangelism. And some of you know this, but the word evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion, and that word is, means good news. It's the word that we use to get our word gospel. Uh, but it hasn't always, unfortunately, felt like good news when we've talked about the gospel. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's intended to be good news that's shared, that's heard. Uh, and part of what I'm wondering with this series, and I'm hoping to help us think about a little bit, is if somewhere along the way uh, we misunderstood, if that, if that feeling that we, some of us have with the word evangelism is because that somewhere along the way we misunderstood what it is or what it means. Maybe it carries some sort of baggage for, from some other experience in your life. And, and the reason that I'm really excited about this study is because if I preach the series as I intend to, uh, it will be an attempt to offer a fresh way to think about evangelism or sharing your faith, uh, sharing the hope that you have. And so I want to start this morning, and as I begin with this topic, I want to start with an assumption, and that assumption is this, that all of us want to share the hope that we have in Jesus. We want to share our faith, but not many of us feel like that we know how. All of us want to share the hope that we have, but not many of us feel like we know how. Where do we start might be a question that we might ask. And when do we, when we do speak about Jesus, what do we say? What words are we supposed to use? How are we supposed to talk about it? And, on, on, you know, and as we think about uh, some conversations that maybe we've had, how, how can we come across in a loving way? How can we come across and communicate this gospel message that is good news in a way that feels like it's good news because we believe it's good news? And not like an angry person or like somebody that's upset, right? And on top of all of the questions that might exist for you about sharing your faith, the reality is that it might also feel intimidating or scary, right? Maybe you don't feel equipped or gifted to be evangelistic. Or maybe where there have been occasions where you've tried, some of you are thinking, I've tried, Doug. I've tried, it stuck my neck out there and I've tried to say some things, but I, when I have done that, I've encountered people that have had bad experiences with church or had bad experiences with Christians. So what I've shared has not been received in the way that I've intended. 
And so I know that those questions exist, and I know, but I want to still assume this, this reality, that I think that all of us deep in our being, whether we think we're good at it or not, whether we think we, we know what to say or not, I think we want to. I think we want to share. I think we want to talk about Jesus. I think we want to communicate the hope that we have. And I think, but I still think those questions exist. And on top of all of those things that might be swirling around in your mind about the word evangelism or your experiences with evangelism or what you know about it, I think there are also two myths that make it harder. And I want to talk about those briefly. The first one is, the first myth is that everyone is an evangelist. And the second is that, I, that we think, I don't have anything to contribute. I don't have anything to contribute to the conversation or to the sharing of the good news about Jesus. And the reason I want to suggest that these two things are myths is because I think that the Bible says something different than these two things. And so I want to look at a couple of places in Scripture where what, what, what the Bible says specifically. The first one is in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, beginning in verse 11. And all these scriptures are going to be up here on the screen. You can, you can look there or you can follow along in your Bible. But Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 11, Paul says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, uh, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. Some translations, this is the NIV that I'm reading from, some translations say Christ gave some to be apostles and, and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, which I think is probably a, more, a better translation of that verse than the NIV that I read from. And maybe some of us have been told at some point in our lives that we are all evangelists and that instead of being timid or shy or not feeling like you're good enough, you just need to step up and step into your true identity and fulfill the calling that you have to share Christ with others in the way that someone you see as an evangelist might do. You just need to have more boldness. You just need to have more courage. And maybe as a result of being told this, even, you might even feel some guilt about not being as good at sharing your faith or as bold about sharing your faith as you feel like you should be. And if that's true for you, I want you to notice here that Paul says that Christ has, has appointed, has gifted some people to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. But Paul seems to believe that certain people have certain gifts, certain roles that they play in the life of a church. We all have responsibility to share Christ with others, but I don't think that Paul thinks that we are all evangelists. And this might be different than what you've heard before. Say it another way, I think that Paul believes that all Christians are too, they're in, we're, we're, we're supposed to have a general orientation toward being evangelistic, toward sharing the good news, but not every one of us is an evangelist. And the second myth about not having anything, anything to contribute, I want to look at another thing that Paul says uh, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. This is what he says. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. 
Paul sees himself as an apostle in these descriptions that he's giving. He also sees himself as an evangelist. And by evangelist, when, I, when I'm talking about this idea that not everybody is, is an evangelist, by the word evangelist, what I'm talking about is someone who is gifted by God, appointed by God to boldly proclaim the good news about Jesus. And what Paul seems to think and what Paul wants for the church, specifically in this passage we're looking at in Colossians, what he wants for the church in Colossae is to pray for him. That's what he asked them. He says, pray for me. Pray that I will have a few things. Pray that I'll have opportunities to proclaim the gospel and pray that I will be bold in taking those opportunities. And then the third thing he, that he asks is pray that I might have clarity in the way that I present Christ so that it can be understood as someone hears it and receives it. And I want, to, I want you to hear me out on this part. If Paul assumed that this was the job of every person, every believer in Colossae, every person in Colossae should fulfill this role, why does he not then say, and by the way, pray this for me, and I'll be praying the same thing for you? He doesn't say that, does he? Having just requested their prayer for him and his efforts as an evangelist, he then says, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to be wise in the way you conduct yourselves to outsiders. I want you to make the most of every opportunity. I want you to let your conversation be full of grace. I want you to know how to answer everyone. Here's the point that I want to take from this passage these two passages in Ephesians and Colossians. I don't think that Paul thinks everybody is an evangelist. And I don't think that Paul thinks that every person is going to proclaim the good news in some bold, public way. It seems to me that Paul believes that there are unique people within the life of a church, every church, that do have this role, that do have this gift. But for most of us, I think that what Paul sees when it comes to evangelism is that our primary way of sharing the gospel will not be with boldness and maybe with clarity and maybe not in a public way, a public forum, a, a stage, or from the, you know, some, in the public square somehow. I think that what Paul thinks that the primary way that most of us will speak about Jesus will be in response to people's questions. Both roles are needed in the church. Both roles are important. Evangelists proclaim, and everyone is prepared to give an answer for the hope that they have. Evangelists proclaim, and everybody is prepared to give an answer for how they live. And I think Peter is in agreement with Paul on this. You remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 3? A verse that will be familiar to a lot of us. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who might speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ might be ashamed because of their slander. I think that Paul and Peter see that our focus as a church should be to do things like identify and empower and equip people who are gifted evangelists. And we should pray for people who are gifted evangelists that they have clarity and boldness as they proclaim Jesus on a stage or in the public setting or to a Muslim on an airplane or wherever they might be proclaiming that as they live into their specific role and gifting. 
Some people are gifted by the Spirit to do this, and you, and you, I want to just qualify this by saying you might still be nudged by the Holy Spirit to do something that you're not gifted to do or that you're not, is not your role because the Holy Spirit does that. So we always want to leave room for the Holy Spirit to work and do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do. But for most of us, I think, our opportunities to share the good news about Jesus and the hope that we have in Jesus are going to come as people ask questions about our lives. That's the claim that I want to make this morning. And to be sure that you hear me clearly, what I'm suggesting is not letting anybody off the hook. We all still have responsibility to talk about Jesus. It would be easy for someone, if I were to stop the sermon right here, for somebody to hear me and say, well, Doug said I'm not an evangelist, so I don't have to do it. I'm not saying that. It might be true that you're not an evangelist, but you do still have a responsibility, one, the, one that you want, by the way, we, if we work with the assumption that we started in the beginning of the sermon. It's a, it's a responsibility that you want. It's not one that we're trying to get out of. To say it simply, I want to say this. This is our primary evangelistic mission and responsibility. It's this, to live a questionable life. All of us have a shared call that has been placed upon our lives when we surrendered our lives to Jesus to live questionable lives. And I want you to hear me this morning. This might be where you get, we prepare to get our toes stepped on, might included. No one is going to ask us questions about who we are or how we live or what we're doing or why we're doing it if we live like every other suburban middle class person in this country. If you don't have different priorities, if you don't have a different way of spending your time, if you, don't, if you do what every other person does, no one is going to ask questions. And it might be that we aren't getting questions because we've insulated ourselves so that we rarely share a table with people who don't also share our same beliefs or convictions. Or it might be that we're not getting questions because our lives don't actually look any different. If we spend like everybody else, if we vacation like everybody else, if we renovate our kitchens like everybody else, if we place all of our hope in the same things that everybody else places their hope, if we talk about all the big issues in our country in the same ways that everybody talks about those issues, if we behave like everybody else, what church would they possibly question? But on the other hand, I want you to imagine with me for a minute can you imagine what would happen in our world if every Christian that you know was living the kind of life that made people in their circles ask them questions? If you lived a life that was so odd, so weird, so unique, so different that your neighbors and the parents at your kid's birthday party and your family members and your coworkers, they want to know, who are you and why did you do that? instead of that. And if they asked that, that would be the point in which we would share the reason for the hope that we have. That would be the moment where we would get an opportunity to talk about the Jesus that we love. I believe that this way of being in the world as a follower of Jesus can work 
Because it is what turned the Roman Empire upside down during the earliest days of Christianity. While some evangelists like Paul and Peter were boldly proclaiming the good news and doing the work that evangelists always do, there were also, think about this, there were also thousands of people, ordinary, everyday Christians like you and me who were infiltrating every part of society and living the kind of questionable lives that raised curiosity, that provoked questions about the Christian message. You don't hear about this group of people very much because in the Bible, Paul and Peter, rightfully so, get a lot of the face time, right? They get a lot of the, the publicity. But this group of people that is mostly unnamed, they surprised the world. They surprised the Roman Empire with their lifestyle. And we know this because in the 4th century, the Roman Emperor, Emperor Julian became so afraid that the Christian movement was subverting Roman culture and starting to take over the Roman Empire that he sent out a message to all of his officials. And as we read this message, you'll see that Julian refers to Christians as Galileans, so when you hear that word, that's who he's talking about, and he refers to Christianity as atheism, which was the way that it was referred to then because of the Christian belief uh, that they denied the existence of pagan gods, of multiple gods. And so in, in Roman, Rome's eyes, Christians were the ones that were atheists, which is an interesting way that Christianity, it's not the point of the sermon, but Christianity sort of took that word on and applied it to other people. But this is what Julian said. Listen to this. It's kind of some older language, so kind of hang with it a little bit, but he's, it's really good. He said, we must pay special attention to this point. And by this means effect a cure. He wants, he wants to fix the problem. For when it came about that the poor in Rome were neglected and overlooked by the Roman priests, then I think the impious Galileans observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. And they have gained ascendancy. Things are increasing in the worst of their deeds, what he thinks is worst of their deeds, through the credit they win for such practices. For just as those who entice children with cake, I guess that was a thing back in Rome, and by throwing it to them two or three times, induce them to follow them, and then when they are far away from their friends, cast them aboard a ship and sell them as slaves, He's suggesting that just the same way that this happens in Roman culture, by the same method, I say, the Galileans, Christians, also begin with their so-called love feast or hospitality or service of tables. For they have many ways of carrying it out, and hence they call it by many names. And the result is that they have led very many into atheism, what we know of as Christianity. What was his primary concern? It wasn't door knocking or an evangelistic strategy that the church had. It wasn't that these Christians were standing on a street corner with a bullhorn and shouting to everybody that passed by that they were going to hell. What made Julian concerned was that they were extending extravagant grace. They were offering radical hospitality and they were living questionable lives that evoked curiosity. See, in the Roman Empire, every man had three women. He had a wife and a mistress and a concubine. Slaves were treated unspeakably terribly. Women were treated as inferior. No one cared for the poor. Poverty was not 
Poverty was a sign of weakness, that it was your fault, that you had done something wrong. There was no interest in hospitality or in hospices or in hospitals. There was no healing of people or caring for people. It was a world where only the strong survive and men were definitely on top of society. And then along came Christians and we healed the sick and we fed the hungry and we treated women as equals. And whether you were a pagan or a Jew or otherwise, you were welcome at the Christian table. You ate our food and you drank our wine. We tended you while you were sick. We even cared for your grave. There's some writings that Julian also speaks about that these Christians are tending the graves of dead people. They even cared for the gra- your grave if you died, even if you weren't a Christian. And Julian the emperor sees this and he's like, we have to do something. They're gaining ascendancy. They're taking over. We're going to lose control. And these, again, church, are the Christians whose names you've never heard before. Just doing their part to live in the way of Jesus. And this is the, this is the craziest part. If you continue to look into this, this story that Julian, where he says these things, Julian's idea was to try to get his Roman officials to outlove the Christians. I see that they're doing all these things. Now you go do them better. He told them to start distributing food to the hungry and to build hostels for poor travelers. But guess what? His plan actually didn't work. Why not? Because you can't make a pagan official love somebody. Living questionable lives is not a Christian strategy. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what makes you capable of loving the world in the way that Jesus loves the world. The Holy Spirit is what makes it possible for us to extend the kind of love toward people that we're talking about. And I believe with all my heart that when Christians throughout the centuries have lived like this, it was so countercultural that what happened is that over time, people opened themselves up to this kind of community. This kind of hospitality, this kind of love. Why? Because it was attractive. Because they were doing things that nobody else was doing. They were behaving in ways that nobody else was behaving. They were talking like nobody else talked. Titus was an evangelist. And Paul left Titus in Crete, an island in Greece, to serve the church, the churches there. And I don't know if you remember, it's just a, it's a really short book that Paul writes to Titus. I don't know if you remember what Paul says to Titus in chapter, Titus chapter 2, but he, he says, I'm summarizing here, you can go read it for yourself later. He says, here's what I want you to tell the church. And he has this long list. Some of you will remember this. He says, Paul says to Titus, I said, I want you to teach the older women in the church not to slander, to not drink too much wine. I want you to teach the younger women to love your husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure. I want you to teach younger men to be self-controlled. And I want you to teach slaves to not steal from their masters or to talk back to their masters, but to show that you can be trusted. It's this long list of things, this ethical behavior and these things that he wants them to do, ways he wants these, Paul wants to tell Titus to instruct the church there to live. And if you've heard this passage before, you may have heard it, and it's, it's almost like this, it's a really odd list. It's this long list of things, and 
maybe that you're supposed to do as a Christian, ways you're supposed to live. And it's been used in a lot of us who have heard it taught over the years, it's been used to kind of, you know, cherry-picked out of the context there and slapped onto so many of our, our modern kind of ears and said, these are also things you're supposed to do. And that might be true in some of the things that he says. But it sort of feels like this long list of things that you're supposed to do and that that's really the focus of what Paul is writing about until you get to verse 10. And when I saw this verse and reread it in preparation for this sermon, it was like I had never read this passage before. I was reading it for the first time. This is what Paul says at the end of that long list in Titus chapter 2, verse 10. He says, do this so that in every way they... Teach the church these things, all these different groups of people. Teach them these things so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. That's the NIV. Some translations say, so that in everything you will be an ornament. You'll be an ornament to the teaching of Jesus, like a decoration on a tree. Jesus is the tree and you're the thing that makes the tree pop. You're the, tr the thing that brings people's eyes to the tree. And the question that you want to ask as you read from Titus chapter 2 is, why, why will we live this way, Paul? You older women won't slander your husbands and drink too much wine because in that day, every older woman did that. You younger men will be self-controlled. Why? Because no younger man is being self-controlled. You slaves won't steal from your masters or humiliate them any chance that you get because every slave is looking for an opportunity to do that. So by the choice you make about how you live, it will be so bizarre to the culture that you live in that your life will make Jesus attractive. Your life will be questionable. Someone is going to ask you, Paul says to Titus, if you tell the church to do this, somebody is going to ask the people in your church, why exactly are you doing that again? Nobody does that. We Christians live at the same pace that everybody else lives. And maybe, I can hear maybe the pushback come as I think about what I'm about to say, maybe hard work was a value that needed to be instilled in Americans at some point in the past. There's nothing wrong with hard work, by the way. I'm very much for it. But you know what I think Americans don't know how to do now, Christians specifically, rest, practice Sabbath. If you were to actually do this and resist our culture's push to do more, it would bring questions. Or what if you had the ability to speak about Jesus conversationally when you were questioned about how you're dealing with the suffering that you're going through? What if someone noticed that you are navigating your suffering in a different way than the way they see everybody navigating suffering? Or what if you grieved differently than other people? Do we grieve as people that have hope, like Scripture tells us to do, or do we grieve as people who only have this life to live for? What if we did something unexpected? You think it would be questioned? I'm just brainstorming here. You think it would be questions if you, questioned if you spent part of your vacation 
serving the poor. There's nothing wrong with going to sit on the beach for a few days. But what if you spent part of that vacation serving the poor? And it happened to be heard about by somebody in one of your circles, and they would be like, why did you do that? And you had the opportunity to talk about Jesus. You think it would be questioned if you opened your home to a refugee? You think it would be questioned if you didn't talk like everybody else talks in the office? You think it would be questioned if you made certain career choices that might not make sense to some people because of your conviction about what Jesus wants for you? You think it would be questioned when that relationship of yours is strained that instead of holding a grudge, you pursue reconciliation? You think it would be questioned instead of holding a grudge that you instead choose to lean in to that strained relationship and work to be a peacemaker? To repair it? I, I do. Because nobody does that. What if we made certain commitments with social media and our phones and how attached to them we are? And how attached to them we allow ourselves to be? What if every Christian that you knew was like, no more. I won't do it anymore. What if we made certain decisions about how we spend our time or our money, about how we love the earth, how we love our neighbors, how we love the outcast, how we speak up on behalf of the voiceless, right? There really is no end, if you think about it. There is no end to how this can be applied. The only, only limit to it is how creative you might be and how willing you are. And we'll do it not because we're social workers, or because we have some political agenda, but because the things I'm talking about are values that will usher into the world the reign and the rule of God. They're things that will invite questions. And I've just given you a few examples. There is no limit to the end of the ways that we could think about how to live questionable lives. Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch tell a story about hearing about a guy that was trying to live this way. He had been a Christian for many years and had moved to San Francisco and had opened up in San Francisco in the Mission District, district of San Francisco a shoe store called the Subterranean Shoe Room. He had an evangelistic heart, but he was, he was going about sharing the, the gospel and the good news that he had, the hope that he had in Jesus in a very different way. And Michael, Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch heard about it and they decided to visit him and so they go to this neighborhood and they go to the shoe room and they walk in and, he, and they say, it's just a shoe room. You know, it's got shelves and shoes all over the wall. But in the middle of the room, there's this, this chase lounge that's sitting just kind of there in the middle of the room. And when they go in, the guy asks them if they can help, he can help them in any way. And they say, well, we're not actually here for shoes. We heard that you have some kind of a, a missional thing that you're doing here with this shoe store. And the guy was like, I don't know, really know about that. I'm mean, just a shoe guy. You know, I'm a shoe store guy. And they were like, okay, but is there something else? I mean, we've been hearing from lots of people about what you're, some, you're doing something. We're not really sure what it is. We just came to visit. We're in, the, we're in the area doing some other kind of work, and we just decided to come and check it out. And the guy was like, well, I do something a little different than most shoe store owners. And they're like, okay, well, tell us what you do. And he said, well, when people come into my shoe store and they're looking at shoes, I ask what every shoe salesman asks. I say, can I help you? And they say, what everybody says, no, thank you, I'm just looking, right? And he says, at that point, I'll say to them, well, 
If you have the time and you'd like to tell me your life story, I'll tell you what kind of shoes that you're looking for. And he said that the customers go, they look at their watch and they're like, all right. And so they have a seat on the lounge. And he said, and some people tell me their story in five minutes. Some take 25 minutes. I was born here. I was raised here. I went to school here. My dad did this. My mom did this. I'm divorced. I'm married. Here's my background. I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I'm a Christian. I'm a Muslim. I'm an immigrant. Whatever it may be. Out comes their whole life story. And sometimes with tears and sometimes they tell me through tears and sometimes it's obvious that they've never told their story to anyone before. Nobody's ever asked. And then he said, because I know shoes and I love shoes, after they've told me their life story, I do know what kind of shoes that they would wear. And so I say, if you would excuse me for a moment, I go and I, and I go out to the, go to the back and I select a pair of shoes and then I say to them, is this what you're looking for? And he said, often, because they're a bit raw, they'll say through tears, blubbering, yes, that's exactly what I'm looking for, you know? And so he said, I do sell a lot of shoes. But then on the way out, while we're wrapping up the transaction, they'll often ask me, they're like, who are you? And I say, I'm just a shoe store guy. And they're like, no, but really, who are you? Are you some type of like spiritual guru or something? And he's like, no. Are you like a therapist or a psychiatrist? And he's like, surely you are. Who are you? What are, what are you doing here? And he said this, at that point, he told Michael Frost and Alan Hurst this. He said, at that point, we get to talking. And he said, since I became a shoe store owner who listens to people, I have been invited to more weddings and parties and bar mitzvahs. He said, I've spoken to people about Jesus a hundred times more since I became a surprising shoe store guy than, what I, than I was a Baptist pastor, which he was at one point. Now, we can't all do what this guy did. And that's not the point of the story. But we can all find ways to live questionable lives. This series is not a call to pull back and to retreat from the world it is a call to lean in to the opportunities that are in front of us. And I believe that this is a primary command that is placed upon the life of every believer. Evangelists have their particular role, and we should identify them and pray for them and encourage them and equip them and send them to do the work that God has prepared for them. But for most of us, the question is, are we living questionable lives? are people asking us questions about our lives. And maybe it's obvious to you, but in case it's not, I want to say the reason I believe that there is something worth paying attention to, to what I'm talking about, is because the difference with this way of thinking about evangelism is that it starts with you and me. God has to do something in us in order for us to be able to talk about the hope that we have. And most other evangelistic strategies that I have experienced and seen and participated in are about getting something into them first. And I think that can come. I think first some of our lives, my life, needs to be transformed by the Holy Spirit so that I can, I can speak more about the hope that I have. Are people asking us questions about our lives? And if not, are we doing it right? 
Ultimately, this is not a series that is asking you to become something that you're not. What I am doing is inviting us to reclaim the kind of spirit-filled life that Christians have always lived, that we are already living together. We're doing this. This is happening in many ways. I don't want to suggest that it's not either. But I'm asking us to reclaim the kind of spirit-filled life that invites questions. And in the following weeks, we're going to get really practical and talk about how we can do this. But for today, the question is, how can we live questionable lives? How can we live lives that create and provoke questions from other people? So that they want to know, what is it that's different about you? Why did you do that instead of that? Why did you say that instead of that? Why did you go and spend your time doing that or your money doing that instead of all the other ways you could have spent your time and your money? I'm really excited to go on the journey together. I think that it has the possibility of changing our lives. So I want you to be prepared for that. I have been more nervous about today's sermon because once you talk about something, you can't not talk about it anymore, right? So Lana has been my audience the last week or so and hearing my kids have been listening to things and hearing me talk about things because it needs to be talked about. But once it gets talked about, you can't ignore it. So now we all know we need to live questionable lives and the question is, will we do it? And how creative will we be? Will we be? And how willing will we be? as we step into this call that's been placed on our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we, we want to be people that surprise the world with the unexpected things that we do. The unexpected ways that we live, that we speak, that we uh, function in the world, that we interact with our family and our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends. God, will you give us just spirit-filled creativity and courage uh, to, to think deeply about how we can live a questionable life. And, I, and I'm grateful for the community in settings like this, in moments like this, because there is some encouragement that comes from knowing that if we do it, we won't be doing it alone, that we'll be doing it together, and that all of us will be given opportunities to talk about the hope that we have in Jesus and to tell people in our lives, people that we come into contact with, how much we love you and how much you've changed us. Father, we pray that you'll go with us on this journey. You'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us courage to receive what you want us to receive so that we can live in the way that you've called us to live. We pray in the name of Christ, our brother and our Savior and our friend. And the church said... Amen. Would you stand with me and let's sing this song together before our prayer.